0: Now, it's my pleasure to introduce our speaker for today. Our speaker for today is Nathaniel Louster. He wrote a book, probably several, um, Death and Life of the Single-Family House. Death and Life of the Single-Family House. Uh, Nathaniel is an associate professor of sociology at UBC and author of the award-winning book, The Death and Life of the Single-Family House, Lessons from Vancouver on Building a Livable City. His book and work investigate the regulatory power attached to the house and its impact on the shape and inhabitability of North American cities. Please welcome Nathaniel to our meeting today. Nathaniel, thank you. So um, this is from my book, uh, uh, mentioned multiple times now. Um, It actually has a lot of different chapters. I'm going to focus today on uh, some of the historical stuff. Um, But it speaks to a broad range of issues concerning uh, urban planning and and really just how we do housing in North America, with a special focus on Vancouver. Uh, So what I'm really going to focus on is how the house becomes brought to life in Vancouver, and then how we start talking about the death of the house in Vancouver. Um, To set that up, It's worth noting that we've really undergone this really dramatic change in Vancouver. So we've had this extraordinary transformation away from uh, living in single family detached houses. And just to see to some extent how extraordinary that is, you see what it looked like in 1961 Uh, Where roughly three-quarters of dwellings in Metro Vancouver, this is the metropolitan area as a whole, were single-family detached houses. And we get this really dramatic drop-off through the years, so that 50 years later in 2011, we're down to somewhere near a third. Um, That's huge in terms of the the range of change that we're seeing um, in North American cities. And just to give you again some idea of uh, what that looks like, if we look down the coast to some of our neighbors in, in uh, um, the US, San Francisco is, is r- roughly around 50% single family detached houses. Um, so much, much higher than the, about the third of, of people living, or of households being single detached houses here in Vancouver. And then you get down to Portland, often seen as kind of like this, this uh, beacon of urbanism to some extent, and we're up to uh, over 60%. So you really get a sense of Vancouver being at one time much greater in terms of the proportion of people living in uh, single family detached houses than Portland and now much less than San Francisco. If we go further east, New York City we've surpassed as a metropolitan area in terms of people living outside and and, uh, households living outside of single family detached houses. And then you get down to a place like Phoenix, somewhat renowned for its sprawl, uh, and again Back in 1961, we had more people living in single-family detached houses than even Phoenix. So you really get a sense of just the range of change that we've seen. Looking across Canada, Montreal is the only city that in uh, 2011 actually beat Vancouver in terms of the proportion of people living outside of single-family detached houses. Uh, As of 2016, we have actually surpassed Montreal as well. Uh, But you can see again that even within Canada, we're quite far ahead of other places in terms of living and alternatives to single-family detached houses. What's also striking about this extraordinary transformation uh, in terms of Vancouver's living situation and how we house people is that this has been accompanied, this extraordinary transformation, by consistent appearances as North America's most livable city. Now, I'm not saying that you should necessarily believe the Economist Intelligence Unit when they rank cities in terms of where's the most livable, because as we know, they screwed up by imagining that Vancouver Island was the same as the city of Vancouver the last time they did rankings and they saw traffic delays on Vancouver Island influencing the ranking of the city of Vancouver. But you can actually talk to people locally and you really get a sense that it is pretty livable. So this is just from one of the people that I talked to from my book. Uh, She lived down in the West End, and she was very excited to talk about how she could walk everywhere to the end of her street. There's all these different uh, ethnic restaurants that she loves, uh, access to um, transportation, to work. It's so central. It doesn't matter where she is. She's in the middle of everything. And yet she also feels like she's in this tiny community. She knows all the shopkeepers, knows her neighbors. It's like being in a small town, but also in the center of a huge city. So from that perspective, we seem to be doing something right in terms of creating these livable environments. By and large, I'll be talking about Metro Vancouver, but it's an excellent question, and I'll keep going back and forth in terms of talking about Metro and the city, in terms of uh, what's at the center of Vancouver. But feel free at any time to uh, to, to, uh, say it's not actually what's going on in, say, suburban Langley or something, which is absolutely correct. In terms of this transformations, this raises two big questions though, right? One is how did we get so many houses in the first place? Because again, we start like with more people living in detached houses than we see even in Phoenix today. And then how did we get so few uh, today, right? So how did we uh, undertake this dramatic transformation? So that's what I'm mostly gonna talk about today, but I will touch upon some of the other elements of my book um, uh, as I go forward. To start off with, of course, it's worth noting that uh, we have this pre-colonial history in British Columbia, um, and this extends to Vancouver itself. And just to point out that houses are not, and single-family detached houses are not any kind of natural way of living, uh, it's worth pointing out what people lived like here pre-colonial era. And of course, if you go back to some of the notes of, say, Simon Fraser, one of the explorers, but if you also talk to people um, who have descended from people who lived here in the pre-colonial era, you see that, yes, people actually lived in what we would nowadays describe as low-rise apartment buildings. That was the standard kind of housing. So here we have a description. The houses are built of cedar planks, uh, shaped similar to the one already described. The whole range, 640 feet by 60, is under one roof. Um, and all the apartments, which are separated in portions, are square excepting the chief's, which is 90 feet long. So, this is a description of one of the uh, uh, villages encountered along the Fraser River. Now, of course, um, colonialization brought uh, dramatic changes, including, of course, taking away all this land that was unceded land, um, so it was outright stolen um, effectively from the peoples who lived here. Um, And in exchange, they set up these really small little patch reserves which are noted in green here from this old map of the 1870. And then you have the government reserves in purple. And other stuff, other land gets sold off. It gets apportioned and sold off in these little square lots. So this is the commodification of all this land for sale that we started to see that was, again, just stolen land. And we see this extending not just from the city of Vancouver but, of course, out into the broader metropolitan area. Uh, And we start to see um, from this map from, uh, um, roughly speaking, somewhat later in the 1890s, you start to see the auctions up here. We see the auctions of North Vancouver. We still see the auctioning off of all the lots in red out here. And as these lots get auctioned off, they start to get developed. So this is where we see, of course, commodification and colonialism went together at the very founding of Vancouver. As a boomtown, Vancouver actually grew up mostly starting with lumber and then, of course, through the railroad. And, of course, the railroad at one point in time was supposed to stop in Port Moody, but instead the city of Vancouver worked out a special real estate deal, putting real estate deals right at the center of the history of Vancouver, where they drew the railroad out in exchange for giving the railroad a bunch of free land. And so the railroad came out to the city of Vancouver instead, and a whole bunch of people who had speculated on land at Port Moody lost a lot of money because the railroad kept going. So the railroad comes all the way out to Vancouver, and we get this market-led growth. Now, by and large, what I mean by market-led growth is we have all of these um, uh, plots of land that have been commodified, have been subdivided up like those little squares I just showed you, and then sold off. And then people start to develop these things. And they develop them howsoever they see fit. After the incorporation of Vancouver in 1886, we see an enormous boom in growth brought largely by the railroad. And within 25 years, Metro Vancouver, as we know it today, grows to be the third largest metropolis within Canada. So again, dramatic growth right from the start. What we see in terms of uh, development on the ground is really pretty interesting. Again, a lot of this development starts off as being market-led. So we can look at some of these lots around where um, the railroad ends up having its terminus, where we see the center of the city, and we start to see what people are building. This is taken from some of the old insurance maps. This is not actually in my book, but it's been something that I've been really passionate and had fun with since writing the book. But it actually talks us through what we see in terms of the development in 1889. You can look at the different buildings that were built, and you see that most of them, are forms of housing, at least in this particular little block area. Right? So this, at this time in 1889, was a little suburban area that had been parceled off. People were starting to build and put up housing in the area, and you can see all the little houses that I've written up in green. The only thing that isn't housing is this church down here in the lower corner. What's also really fun about this, from my perspective as somebody who loves housing, is that there's all different kinds of housing being built. So again, no regulations on what you could build. We see row houses up here, semi-detached, side-by-side attached houses here, uh, laneway houses right on the back here. All of these things were very much part of the development patterns that we saw in the 1880s coming up to the 1890s. Um, So we actually see these things show up. Now what happens about 25 years later? A lot of this stuff is gone, right? So I look at a different insurance map in 1914. What's still there? Well, everything in red is gone. The stuff in green is still there. We still see those row houses sticking around. We still see some houses here in the middle. But what's replaced it? Now we have mostly these buildings that take up the entire lot. We have offices up here, a restaurant, a printer, a steam laundry, uh, rooming houses. This becomes a labor temple with tailor-printer offices. We have a hotel over here, another rooming house, a warehouse, um, rooming houses, uh, um, offices, and the uh, permanent, I think, an insurance building. So we have a real broad range of things that suddenly sweep in and replace these single-to-family houses and these, uh, in some cases, row houses, laneways, semi-detached. So this is the kind of development patterns that we saw with this really rapid growth. Where is this block today? Well, it's down at the Salvation Army Belkin House and the BC Hydro Tower. So it's right down at Richard Street and Pender Street. And you can see a lot of those buildings that were actually constructed to replace the uh, small residential lots are still there. We actually still have this Victoria block uh, with the uh, early 20th century buildings. Over here are some of the Pender addresses. Again, uh, Hotel Canada, etc., cetera, Orr Gallery. All these buildings are still there. But we actually see these patterns um, of urban growth where you actually did have a lot of churn, a lot of uh, change, a lot of redevelopment of these uh, residential properties. What did the streetscapes look like? Well, they actually look kind of like this. Uh, this is the 100 block of Cambie near Cordova. And you can see a real mix of buildings, some more residential. And the residential would have also been hotel, hotel or residential. You see the actual real estate uh, branch there. And you see something that looks more like an industrial use over here. And you'd see shops and residential uh, places mixing quite freely. Of course, you also had a great deal of industrial development in the early days of Vancouver. And this, of course, all of False Creek Um, uh, was very heavily industrial with lots of lumber yards, shipbuilding, other kinds of industries in the area. Um, So we had a lot of industry also moving in and altogether this rapid growth that was market-led with a lot of industry, a lot of different mixing, uh, was seen as a real problem. Now there were a lot of different kinds of problems associated with the management of this rapid market-led growth. First off, and perhaps the most important one, was that elites and the middle class became really uncomfortable with all the things going on in terms of the changes in the properties around them. Right? You buy your own house. You expect you'll be surrounded by other houses all of a sudden. The house next to you becomes a rooming house, and you're half, being forced to mingle with the working classes. Right? That was seen as a negative. Um, we have uh, shops showing up, saloons, right? industrial. And industry did stink at the time. Right? So you had real concerns about uh, public health. And there were also these boom and bust property markets that had to do with how everything was market-led as well. All of this occurred at the same time as we see this proliferation of nuisances. And with nuisances, these ideas that this is a public nuisance, this is something we should regulate against, came the rise of regulations. Now, these regulations for the most part, kind of one-off, right? We could actually set up permitting regimes, and you'll see very early on, in in this case, the city of Vancouver, setting up bylaws to regulate things like taxis, horse-drawn taxis. Uh, We see uh, permitting to set up saloons. We see permitting to set up um, rooming houses occur quite quickly as part of public health bylaws. So you have a variety of these different permits show up. And some of these, as well, specify how far apart things can be, especially things like uh, tanneries, which really stink, or slaughterhouses. These were seen as having to be a certain distance away from residential buildings. So this creates a lot of unwieldy regulation at the time, where people have to figure out exactly how far apart things are. And you suddenly have to start hiring all these inspectors Um, and these uh, regulators effectively to start to deal with what becomes an unwieldy set of regulation. At the same time, I want to call attention to the fact that this is where a lot of the action is taking place. The elites and the middle class are really reacting against the chaos of the market-led city. And that's part of where all these one-off regulations come from is elites and and the middle class being like, I really don't like the fact that I've got a saloon suddenly showing up next to my house. So let's do something about that. The other response of elites and the middle class was to move and to try and create these elite enclaves in different places around the city. Now, the first one of these that we actually see was the West End itself. So elites began to move out of these more industrializing areas over on the east side, uh, downtown itself, uh, over here around False Creek, to the West End. And then, of course, we see the West End start to get overtaken by rooming houses, by different restaurants and other things moving in. And elites move out of there as well. Then they move to Shaughnessy, to Point Grey, to these other uh, uh, suburbs at the time where they thought they could actually preserve uh, more of this elite standard of life. Not only did they think they might do this through just moving there and having it sold off to them as an elite um, uh, haven, effectively, from the city, but they also started to put in place regulations, acts, legislation to protect the residential character of these elite suburbs. Right? We're not going to get chased out again. We're not going to let the city chase us out again as it expands outward. We're going to preserve these elite enclaves. In Shaughnessy, they're powerful enough to do it, and they've got the railroads backing, because this is the railroad creating Shaughnessy, this elite suburb, that they get a provincial act limiting the use of Shaughnessy to single-family houses. You can't do anything in Shaughnessy but build residences for the elite. In Point Grey, they think, this is a great idea. We're going to do something like this, too. We're going to pass a bylaw to protect Point Grey, which was its own separate municipality at the time. Um, and it's also going to be residential only. Right? We're, going to, we're, going, we're not going to let in rooming houses. We're not going to let in apartment buildings. We're going to have this be um, an enclave that protects only the middle class and, and the elites who move there. More broadly speaking, these movements in Shaughnessy and Point Grey start to mesh with a much bigger movement um, of town planning. The town planning movement is coming from a variety of places, but it's really promoted heavily in England at the time uh, by people like Thomas Adams down here in the lower corner and the Town Planning Institute. Thomas Adams is really taken with the Garden City movement. Everybody should live in detached houses. Um, the Cities, the sort of packing everybody in together, were seen as a real evil at the time and at the heart of a lot of uh, social woes. So Thomas Adams is actually brought out um, to see Vancouver and, and uh, actually thought of as a possible planner for the city of Vancouver as it went forward. Ultimately, they didn't go with Thomas Adams because he was seen as being a little bit too socialist-leaning. So he actually favors making sure we have the working class as well having uh, uh, houses. On the other hand, the Harlan Bartholomew down in the United States, uh, a favorite of some of the audience members I know, um, the Harlan Bartholomew is actually this planner coming from St. Louis who is really starting to become quite famous for implementing great plans in North America. He's also, of course, becoming famous for implementing plans that get around uh, restrictions on uh, zoning for race in the United States. So he becomes quite famous in part for being able to say, well, yeah, you can't actually explicitly zone to keep out black people in these neighborhoods in the United States, but you can still do it through zoning for use. And zoning for use passes one of its big Supreme Court legal challenges right around the same time, 1926, one of the uh, primary judges that said, you know, it's okay to zone for use and in particular to zone for single family housing as a use, which will effectively keep out minorities at the time. Uh, It's okay to do this because it really starts to support things that we really value, like the privacy of the middle class. Justice Brandeis, right, who writes together uh, uh, with another author The idea that there is such a thing as a right to privacy in the first place is sitting on the Supreme Court and is one of the swing voters that actually enables single family zoning to be put into a legal protective category validated by the Supreme Court. And from that position in 1926, it spreads all across North America. Doesn't even just stop at the border because people like Harlan Bartholomew carry it across the border when he's brought up to plan for Vancouver. So we see uh, this real spread of a planning profession to deal with all the different problems that are seen as as coming from this market-led growth. And we see provincial enabling legislation locally. We see them bringing in Bartholomew to actually design Vancouver's plan. But we also see a lot of local agitation, again, coming from in part the examples of Shaughnessy and Point Grey to protect single-family residential uses in Vancouver. And we also get uh, um, input from the ratepayer associations, the the DAYS Canadian Taxpayer uh, uh, Federation. So these kind of local organizations that step in and say, this is what we want uh, these different neighborhoods to look like. So all these things come together and we actually see zoning for houses, zoning for single-family detached houses show up as something that uh, uh, spreads all across the region and is meant to really constrain all of the chaos of market-led growth into this urban core, whereas all these neighborhoods that have been filled out uh, with houses outside the core are never going to change. That's the idea of single-family zoning. So it becomes installed as a pretty well-defined regulatory creature, if you will, that actually stands at the border of the city and fights off anything that might move out of the city into the surrounding suburbs. To do that, though, we actually have to define what we mean by things like family and detached house. And what's really fascinating to me, I began as a sort of family scholar, um, is where you actually see these definitions of family show up. You see them in the bylaws. These are just links to some of the bylaws you can see in the city of Vancouver. Here's family and what it means in the city of Vancouver. The city has a say in who is a family and what constitutes a family through its zoning legislation, which again to me is just extraordinary, right? And for that matter, to the Canadian Supreme Court, ultimately was somewhat extraordinary. They said cities can't do this. You don't have the power to define family, which is why family in the, in the city of Vancouver means not just One or more individuals all related by blood, marriage, or adoption. But okay, because the Supreme Court says we can't take such a draconian position on what's a family, we'll also say a maximum of three unrelated individuals. That's their little, okay, we'll give you something else. We can't entirely define what this means. So this is what family means. And it's actually written as part of the bylaw. And it's why you can't end up having more than five people live together in a detached house if they're not related to each other. Why five and not three? Because you can have up to two boarders as well show up as as living in a single family detached house without violating the bylaw. So you can get up to five by pretending two of them are actually just lodgers or boarders. But otherwise, we've got this very solid definition that says we've defined family. And now that we've defined family, we can pull it apart from defining what a house is, right? And so we also have what a house is. What is a one-family dwelling? Well, it's a building that contains only one dwelling unit that fits just one family, right? And the dwelling unit uh, can be occupied by no no more than one family and up to a maximum of two boarders or lodgers. Um, And it also talks about how we define that. It has to, at some point, as plumbing regulations start to become important, have at least one complete bathroom unit comprising one water closet, which is a wonderful old term, right, for a toilet. Uh, one hand wash basin and one bathtub or shower contained within each dwelling unit. So it has to have at least one bathroom. But this is the fun part. There shall not be more than one kitchen, right? And this is where they make sure you're not subdividing these houses. It has to be a one family, one dwelling unit. Only one kitchen. More than one kitchen, you're violating the bylaw. So this is where we start to see these things get defined down in laws in order to prevent the city from encroaching outward, in order to prevent the subdivision of homes into the rooming houses that we saw on the West End, which ultimately were redeveloped into the West End we see today. These ultimately make their way into census descriptions as well. Uh, Again, it's a legacy of the planning um, histories that we have in both the United States and in Canada that really validate the single family detached house as this normative uh, dwelling type that people should live in and are expected to live in. That these are the two categories, single detached house in Canada, a one family house attached to, uh, whoops, sorry a one family house detached from any other house in the United States that remain coherent. The other categories you'll notice in the United States and Canada kind of vary. The US does uh, counts its dwellings by how many apartments they have, whereas in Canada it's by how tall they are, right? Apartment and building that's five or more stories or less than So they don't keep track of other kinds of buildings the same way, but they pretty much do keep track of single family detached houses the same way because that's one of the categories that became so important in each country. So this is the fix that we really see, right? Single-family residential zoning as the solution, setting up what I like to think of as this great house reserve. Um, and it's not just in the city of Vancouver, but, of course, in its all, all surrounding municipalities. Um, and it also extends all across North America. Every major city has this kind of a great house reserve that is protected land, basically cutting off the further outward growth of the urban core in each of these other metropolitan areas. So this hems in the market-driven chaos of the city. It constrains it. Uh, It preserves the singular livability for houses. So there's a particular set of people that the city becomes implicitly and explicitly concerned about, and that's the people that live in these houses. And it keeps out the poor, right? And keeping out the poor was actually, for a lot of the people who really promoted this, The point, you keep out the poor people. It wasn't the point, again, just to to go back to Thomas Adams, it wasn't the point for Thomas Adams, which is why he didn't get the job of being the planner for the city of Vancouver. For, For a lot of people, it was the point. Nowadays, of course, in Vancouver, it doesn't just keep out the poor, it keeps out everybody who's not a millionaire, right? So this is what we've effectively transformed to here in terms of what houses and this great house reserve is doing. Now, this isn't the only potential problem. With the house. And uh, so I'm moving away a bit from history, but also talking about what we now see uh, with respect to how we have actually preserved so much land for houses in our major cities. Uh, what is that doing? Well, affordability is one of the issues, and it's perhaps the one on most people's minds here in Vancouver, uh, where anytime you step into the uh, Great House Reserve, you're stepping into properties that cost definitely over a million dollars, right? So that's something we see here. Um, as a major concern. And it is a concern all across North America. That is, it's always locking out poor people um, across North America. In most other cities, it's not necessarily locking out the middle class. But affordability is a big issue in terms of overall it's always the case that uh, houses are going to be more expensive than uh, condominiums uh, pretty much in terms of if you build enough condominiums then everybody's sharing the cost of that underlying land and it actually overall ends up reducing the total um, cost of these different units. Uh, But it's also keeping out apartments, it's keeping out renters, it's keeping out all kinds of things when you actually uh, um, have so much land reserved just for single detached houses. Aside from the affordability issue, though, there's a lot of other issues that are also pretty important in terms of what reserving so much land for houses is doing. Another big one is environmental impact. By and large, when we uh, zone for single-family attached houses, this means we're um, uh, surrounding houses with other houses and extending further and further the boundary of where people are living in uh, broader metropolitan areas, so effectively we're promoting a sort of sprawl oriented development. As it extends further and further outward, it displaces existing ecosystem. Now a lot of times that's just existing agriculture, right? Uh, but other times it's also things like forests, things that we really value, and anytime you're displacing agriculture, you tend to be pushing that also further back. Uh, so that that's displacing um, other ecosystems as well. So sprawl by its very nature tends to displace the ecosystem. It also tends to really encourage people to drive everywhere. And driving everywhere is of course a big problem and one of the major contributors to our greenhouse gas emissions here in Canada. Um, So driving everywhere is is a big driver of uh, uh, the greenhouse effect and ends up displacing ultimately uh, ecosystems all over the world. And of course, North America as a whole, where we see so many people living in houses is also where we see so many people driving, and that's really causing a lot of problems. In terms of environmental impact, even if we look at the energy use just to heat residences, uh, single-family detached houses, because they don't share walls, uh tend to actually require a great deal more energy to heat and to cool. So this also ends up contributing uh to greenhouse gas emissions. It doesn't do it as much here where we're reliant upon hydropower as it does in places where you're reliant upon coal power, but it still has this huge effect that everybody lives in their own little heated bubbles, um, and they don't share heating in this sense. Uh that has a huge effect as well on greenhouse gas emissions. So there's real environmental impacts to uh, protecting the house as a way of life as well. There's also these other effects that are a little bit more nebulous on things like urban vitality. That is, what makes a neighborhood interesting. And oftentimes, people like Jane Jacobs, uh, other urbanists, tell us that what makes neighborhoods interesting are having lots of mixed uses around, having people on the street, having eyes on the street, being able to watch people, being able to do different things, and walk to different places nearby. And of course, if you're surrounded by other houses that's all private property um, where you're not necessarily welcome. Um, then you really have nowhere to walk. So this too becomes a real issue uh, in terms of a lot of the ways that we've zoned for single-family detached houses. We've really reduced the urban vitality of a lot of our cities. In terms of democracy, there are some broader claims and there's some broader debates that rage about uh, um, what we understand as what's good for democracy. I'll just raise two quick issues here with respect to uh, how we understand houses in democracy. One is that to the extent that you're surrounded by other people like you, which is what zoning for single family attached houses tends to do, and it also tends to uh, zone for other people like you who are relatively well off, right? then you start to lose empathy for the broader set of people that make up society, for the diversity of our democracy. And that loss of empathy itself can be bad for democracy. Um, As a data point to show that, there's a pretty strong correlation between the proportion of people who live in houses across electoral uh, areas in the United States and the vote for Trump. So you get a real sense that there's something there. Uh, In terms of health, um, some of this is the straightforward things that people have been looking at in terms of walkability itself, right? The more walkable your neighborhood, a lot of people have suggested, um, and research has suggested, although there is some debate, that the more walkable your neighborhood is, the more likely you're to get out and uh, to do, um, to go places and to walk and to be fit and active, right? So there are also health connections. There are a variety of other problems that may also be associated in terms of families, stability, et cetera, et cetera. But there are effectively a lot of potential problems that we're seeing that are associated with protecting the single family detached house as the dominant way of life in North America. I'm happy to expand more on these and show you data later if you like it questions. But if we take on board this idea that yes, there are these real problems with uh, houses, then this effectively lets us see Vancouver as a real success story. That is, just looking back at that same dramatic transformation that I showed you earlier, right? That's huge. Vancouver has gotten more households living outside of detached houses than any other major North American metropolis. So that's a big transformation, and we should see it as a success if we buy that so many people living in detached houses is a problem. So how did Vancouver do it? And, uh, keeping an eye on my time. Um, Effectively, I'll say there's three different ways that Vancouver did it, and these all have to do with looking at this great house reserve that was constructed, and then what do you do with it once you've built this great house reserve, you've protected all these houses? Well, I say effectively, Vancouver's done three things. First off, they've built around the great house reserve. So yes, they've protected all this land as single-family detached zoning land, Uh, But then they actually started to build around it. They both built in the urban core itself, and they built outside. They built things like the agricultural land reserve to protect land that's now agriculture, these existing ecosystems, from having sprawl imposed upon them. In other words, from the city further developing outward. So they have built around uh, existing uh, Great House Reserve. In some places, they've also built over the existing Great House Reserve. So they have started to reintegrate it with the broader urban fabric. Um, And they've also done this kind of clever little sneaky thing, which is renovating the very definition of what is a single family detached house in the first place. And they do this by things like, uh, you can have a secondary suite, we'll allow that. So let's talk about each of these a little bit more in depth. In terms of uh, um, what Vancouver's done, making use of land outside the Great House Reserve, they have minimized uses like the freeway that take up a whole lot of urban land. Remember, the land in the urban core right, is really constrained by the fact that it's surrounded by all these uh, single-family protected zones. So you cannot expand that urban core. It runs up against zoning restrictions. So that means this land in the urban core is really precious. A lot of major North American cities have treated that land like it's garbage. And they've allowed freeway to run through it and uh, transform it and effectively uh, keep it from being developed. So they've really constrained how many people can live in that urban core by making poor use of that land. Vancouver. Famously, the city of Vancouver doesn't have a freeway running through it, except way off at the east corner that we kind of forget about. So uh, this was a major success, right? Politically speaking, and especially the sort of progressive uh, movement in Vancouver to keep the freeway out of running into downtown. Not having a freeway means we've got all that land opened up that otherwise would have gone to road that can be used for something else. And that's, of course, also what we're seeing with the viaducts, which were the attempt to actually get a freeway into downtown Vancouver. They're now gonna come down and they're gonna replace it with other stuff. So you could use that urban land for other things and a lot of how it ultimately gets used is for living. They've densified the urban cores in Vancouver and of course you've seen this back and forth uh, political movement to densify those urban cores but also to do it in a way that preserves its livability. So this livable urbanity is something that Vancouver has ultimately promoted. And they've also redeveloped a lot of former industrial lands. All of False Creek, effectively. Again, it all used to be industrial. Now, it's basically all residential. The other big thing, as I mentioned, is they've uh, uh, created through uh, um, the 1970s, the NDP came in and they put in place the agricultural land reserve. That also protected uh, the existing ecosystems, the existing agriculture um, for large swaths of Metro Vancouver from being developed and from having sprawl uh, impinge upon it. And they've also, of course, protected lands uh, through a variety of governments through the crown lands up into the mountains. So you see a variety of different things that are protected against more sprawl as well in Metro Vancouver. So that's really prevented. Um, Here's the urban core, right here's all in green. This is from the 1970s, a livable region plan, but you can see all these areas put in place that are protected in green, either through the agricultural land reserve or through the uh, parks and uh, crown lands up in the mountains and there's a real attempt to develop not just the city of Vancouver as a core but all these other darker red blots as cores and so at this point we now have in place and this is a a relatively recent map of the um uh basically the uh um urban growth boundary set up around Metro Vancouver, right? So that's the dark black line. On the other side of that is land that's protected against development, either through agricultural land reserve or through other sort of crown land designation. So building around is a big thing Vancouver's done, um, and it's probably the biggest in terms of actually preventing more suburban growth and concentrating people in existing developed land. Another big thing that Vancouver's done though, um, not quite as big but still important, is they've also slowly started to reintegrate some of these single-family detached uh, zoning areas back into the urban fabric. So they've rezoned them effectively. We see that especially in places like here, right? This is actually a big site where you start to see the Oak Ridge Mall and its uh, sort of new town center status expand out into the surrounding Formerly single family um, uh, protected areas. So this is where we start to see actual expansions um, of uh, uh, the urban fabric again into what had been the Great House Reserve. It's still pretty slow. The other big thing that they've done is they've just messed with the definition of single family. What is it we're protecting? And now, they still say, when you look at RS, and here's just an example, the RS5 district schedule in the city of Vancouver, RS is residential RS single family, RS. The five is just one of many different residential single family zones. Uh, They're still protecting the, and maintaining the existing single family residential character, and you'll hear a lot about character anytime there's a planning discussion in these zones. But they're also permitting conditionally one family dwellings with secondary suites and laneway houses. And of course, just recently, to these uh, idea of secondary suites and laneway houses, we added the idea of duplexes, which they still haven't rolled back yet. So uh, we'll see whether or not that changes. But now we can have not just secondary suites and laneway houses, which have to be rented, but also duplexes, potentially, which can be sold off uh, separately in a stratified form. So we see duplexes, um, secondary suites, and laneway houses as all things that are starting to change what we mean by single-family residential character. So that's a kind of sneaky way to get around this great house reserve, is to change what it means in terms of these zoning codes. And Vancouver has done that well. Um, And of course, correspondingly, we see all these kinds of uh, these housing types like Vancouver specials, which are very easily subdividable, right? You can, these were always meant to be kind of sneaky ways to get around existing zoning regulations. So people have been being sneaky in Vancouver for a long time to try and get around these It's not just in Vancouver. Last time I gave this talk was actually in Richmond and uh, you can see there as well, it's just one example, but all across the different municipalities in Vancouver, areas that are zoned for single detached uh, kinds of dwellings also permit and include things like secondary suites. Uh, Some places it's secondary suites. Others it's laneway houses. Others it's sort of weird combinations of these things. But all across Metro Vancouver, um, a lot of different municipalities have been playing around with ways to change the character of this protected status, this great house. So this is what makes Vancouver a success story, I think, um, in terms of trying to understand how things have changed. Uh, I'll wrap things up here just to make sure I don't run out of time. But just to give you a sense, right, this is this dramatic transformation we've seen again Um, in terms of uh, uh, what it looks like today. This is just the most recent census and switching things up to look at where people live as opposed to households themselves. Um, Residents by dwelling type, now you can see that we have actually surpassed Montreal in terms of the proportion of people still living in single detached houses. You can also get some sense about the different ways that uh, um, our major metro areas are really differentiating themselves in terms of urban development. In uh, Toronto, for instance, high-rises are really what's been expanding in terms of how people have been living outside of detached houses. In Montreal, it's really this long history of low-rises that they've had, right? And these are, in many cases, quite old buildings at this point that uh, have enabled them to have so many people living outside of detached houses. Vancouver is actually this funny combination. We've got our high rises, we've got low rises, and we've also got this extraordinary range of things that have really messed with the definition of single-family detached houses. A lot of these are duplexes, right? These sort of secondary suites within an existing house that a lot of people are living in in Metro Vancouver. So again, if we buy the idea that this is a problem um, and we want to actually see more people enabled to live outside of, sec- of uh, single-family detached houses, what challenges might potentially remain. One is that many people really want houses. Right? There is a cultural uh, pressure to this. And when I went out and talked to people about uh, their housing ideals, they really told me that, right? that they had a lot of pressure in many cases. Um, there are also real uh, um, ideas about uh, the lifestyle that people want. That is, it's not just that they're being pressured to buy a house, but they really like the idea of having lots of space and lots of control. And it's totally understandable that you would like these things, right? So lots of control over lots of space is what people really thought they wanted in terms of a lot of their housing choices. There's also, aside from what people themselves want in terms of housing, um, there's also real neighborhood resistance to change. And this, of course, should be quite apparent that we've got a lot of this resistance to change uh, in terms of the single family zone. That said, in terms of what people want in terms of housing, We are seeing, especially in places like Vancouver, as fewer and fewer people live in detached housing, I think people are actually also becoming a lot more flexible and a lot more adaptable to living in different kinds of environments. So a lot of people come back to that same conclusion that I started with in terms of livability and say, you know what? I live in a small apartment, but I actually love it. There are things about it that are really, really desirable and that make up for losing some of this maximization of control over space that we see in terms of a house. In terms of the uh, neighborhood resistance, this is still very much a key facet of uh, local politics. Our last local elections, in some respects, might be seen as a bit of a backlash against uh, uh, the densification of of some of our neighborhoods. Uh, But more broadly, Vancouver has really become seen as a model of livable density. And I think that this is something that, as a a broader uh, positioning within North America, is likely to continue. Um, So we'll see. I think I'm probably. Yes, I think I'm going to wrap it up here. Um, uh, I do have more, again, more, lots more slides, but I won't uh, get onto all of them or have time for them. Um, Just a note, um, uh, you're welcome to contact me with email. I've got a website, but also I've got a blog where I often post about these things. And if you're interested in the book, it is available at the finest libraries in UBC, as well as in uh, some bookstores you can find it. Thank you very much. Mm